2: Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. It's World War Two today and we are making up for being utterly negligent, aren't we Alina?
3: Completely. We've been so negligent of World War Two. I blame Alex. <clears throat> anyway, moving on very swiftly.
2: I think we're negligent about this one aspect of World War Two. I don't think anyone can say we're not giving it coverage. It's got a day a week.
3: That is also true. But you know, if it was me, it'd be World War Two every day, but...
2: That's yeah, but then do. everyone would not listen to us because that's what James Holland does and he's more famous.
3: That is also true. But anyway, we are doing something actually really interesting today. So we've got with us Sam Wallace. He's a PhD student at the University of Leeds. And he's specialising in something that we've not covered on this podcast yet, which is the Tunisian campaign. So welcome, Sam.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's
2: so nervous. Apologies. <laughs> stop being nervous it's fine we're not that scary you can be you're scary your face is scary everything about
3: you is scary
2: see sam there's nothing to be afraid of here we're just (laughs) daft okay We're going to talk about the North African campaign, and we're going to start with 1942 and Operation Torch, which is the Allied invasion of North Africa. See, I know stuff. Set the scene for us, because many people know what was happening in Europe or the Pacific at the time. But as we've been discussing before we came on air, people aren't that hot on North Africa, are they? Um, They're
1: they're hot on some bits of North Africa, and by Mm. bits, I mean El Alamein that's 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 about it. Most people know that that battle and then don't really touch on much of the rest of the campaign, which has left us with quite a bit of a fractured knowledge of what's going on in Africa at the time um so Just a a brief rundown of when it starts. That's June 1940 with the collapse of France. Italy decides to take advantage, declares war on France, and subsequently declares war on Britain as well and invades Egypt. This then leads into a British counterattack in uh, Operation Compass in December of 1940. And then with the driving back of the Italians across the North African desert back into tripolitania the africa corps under rommel is then sent out in early 1941 and you have for about a year and a half just constant back and forth um campaigning between the two sides because the desert um in north africa is fundamentally you're fighting in about a 40 mile wide strip between the coast and the actual interior desert and across thousands of miles laterally east to west from Tripoli to Alexandria, which is um I think somewhere in the region of about three thousand miles. Um this then means that troops tend up running out of um running out of supplies. Uh, Rommel in particular is notorious for outstripping his supply lines as he uh charges across the desert trying to secure Egypt and So it ends in effective stalemate for quite a a considerable amount of time. And then in May 42, um, the Allies, um, British Eighth Army, is hurled back towards uh, Egypt and has to set their defence line up along um, in front of a train stop called El Alamein. So by mid to late 1942... The British position in Egypt is looking tenuous, but Rommel is sitting at the end of a supply line with no fuel, no supplies, because um, even though the Italians have a comparatively strong position in the Mediterranean, British control of Malta and the strength of the Royal Navy is interdicting supplies coming from Italy to North Africa. (coughs) So that sets up the eastern Mediterranean. But in the west, what we've had since the fall of France is the Vichy regime controls Tunisia, Algeria and Morocco. And up to this point, the only action that has been taken by the Allies against Vichy France in that region is the attack at Moselle-Kabir, which is where the um, the British fleet uh, attempts to sink most of the French fleet at harbour to prevent it from falling into Axis hands. Um, it 's quite notorious uh, as, a, as an event because it 's viewed as as sort of treachery on behalf of, uh, on behalf of Prime Minister Winston Churchill um, but um, it does pr- uh, help to persuade um, prospective allies such as the United States that Britain is going to keep fighting despite the fall of France. And it does, in some respects, prevent the French fleet from falling into um, enemy hands. However, this does still mean that the Western Mediterranean, which comprises, uh, obviously, you've got the southern coast of France, the coast of Spain and uh, northwest Africa, is still held by either axis aligned or axis friendly in the case of Franco's neutral, neutral Spain. Um it effectively constitutes a sort of no-go zone. Other than Gibraltar, uh, which is still held by the British, everything else is rather um, concerningly held by the Axis, and this prevents cross-Mediterranean traffic. So
3: you've already said that the Allies at this point are already in Egypt. We all know about El Alamein, which me included. But so if they're already there, why are they deciding to invade North Africa? Can't they just attack from Egypt and land?
1: So, there was the hope that the um, that the British Eighth Army would be able to drive across to Tripoli, but every time that they have entertained um these aspirations of driving west from Egypt and knocking the Italians uh out of North Africa and the Africa Corps with it uh those ambitions have been frustrated so Initially, starting sort of 1941 and then moving onwards, um, British strategic planners start contemplating what is called Operation Gymnast, which is the idea that they're going to springboard into northwest Africa and then threaten the axis position there from the rear. Because while the Vichy French are ambivalently neutral, they're not taking active action against... Allied forces, they're still Axis-aligned, and so they're considered almost to be a legitimate target by the Allied forces. So the, the idea that knocking into this weak, neutral French territory will help secure the Western Mediterranean and threaten the rear of Rommel's army is a very persuasive one for Allied planners. And prior to uh, Wavel's Operation Crusader in late 1941, um, there were concepts of what was known as Operation Acrobat to be paired with Gymnast, which would be the advance following Operation Crusader of the Eighth Army westward, with the two converging on Tripoli to knock the Axis out of North Africa. Um, this does start to change when the uh, Americans joined the war in December 1941.
2: So, yeah, let's move on to that next then. What role did America play in this?
1: So uh, initially, the planning that um uh, that America had envisaged for um <coughs> for the second World War was a hope to concentrate on the Pacific. However, these hopes are rather swiftly dashed when they are persuaded round to what is regarded as the Germany first policy at um, a lot of the interallied conferences. And this then follows with a decision to work out an allied grand strategy at the Arcadia conference. And there are two sort of um, poles that are occupied here by the American and the British planners at Arcadia. And the American planners hope to do what is known as Operation Sledgehammer, um, which is an invasion of France early in possibly even 1942. Um however this then gets pushed back against by British um by the British Chiefs of Staff, particularly Alan Brooke, who do not view this as a feasible solution because any number of divisions that they could put into um French territory um at this point, Al Allah was done in Operation Overlord. The um Possibility that the Germans would counterattack with a considerably overwhelming force and just demolish the bridgehead was too disastrous to contemplate. So instead, British planners opted for their Mediterranean strategy, which is sometimes also known as an indirect, uh, indirect attack strategy, whereby they would work their way round, um, the Mediterranean to encircle the axis into Europe and then push into what was has inevitably been nicknamed the soft underbelly um, because of its sort of ironic twist of what happens in the Italian campaign, Um, and push through Italy because they were deemed as the weak alliance partner. So if they could be made to collapse, then perhaps the rest of the Axis position might follow. So following that... um, you then get this, what is known as the transatlantic essay contest, whereby Churchill tries to persuade Roosevelt round to uh, the idea of invading French North Africa as a preliminary to beginning an invasion of uh, medieval territory—not medieval Mediterranean territories, um, mostly Italy and possibly Greece as well—and this is known then known, becomes known as Super Gymnast in early 1942. And it's a UK and US planned invasion of French Africa. Um, However, finally, in uh, I think the end of May 42, Roosevelt gets persuaded round to the position and they change the uh, name to Operation Torch. And that is the finalised form of what will become the invasion of North Africa.
3: So you've mentioned Operation Torch. Let's stick with that. Can you give us an overview of what happened?
1: Okay, so from the decision made to undertake Operation Torch, a Allied planning staff was formed in London very quickly afterwards. Um, this force was headed up by uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who at this point had not been selected as a Supreme Commander. In fact, he was comparatively low ranking, um, but was elevated to this position because he was regarded almost as sort of um, Marshal, the um, American sort of chief of staff um they were regarded as george marshall's protege um and ike's planning uh, capacity and ability to manage a staff was well regarded so he was placed in charge of what was known as allied force hq after a while but operation torch was built by the planning staff that surrounded ike at that point and the aims of operation torch were to sweep into french north africa primarily initially aimed at Algeria, uh, with possible landings further east. However, there was a lot of uh, back-and-forth politicking on that point, because the respective positions of the British and American chiefs of staff were um, aggressive and conservative, quite respectively. The American chiefs of staff were concerned by the position of Spanish Africa, uh, which is in that... Sort of northwest corner um, between Morocco and Algeria, and because Francoist Spain could potentially block the route into the Mediterranean if they chose to take an active part in the conflict, hence the American Chiefs of Staff, the Joint Chiefs, demanded a Atlantic coast landing. So they demanded that a amphibious landing was made at Casablanca to secure a large port so that Allied forces would not be under-supplied as they attempted to dive eastward in the direction of Tripoli. The British chiefs of staff, by contrast, wanted a more aggressive plan. They wanted to land at Algiers and then eastwards at ports like Philippeville and Bone, um possibly even at Tunis itself, even though that was regarded as slightly too close to Sicily. Um, because of uh, the control of Italian and Luftwaffe uh, air forces over that particular region, Uh, because they were concerned that if they took too long to drive eastward, the Axis would respond by placing a force in the way to try and stop them from outflanking Rommel. So Operation Torch eventually consists of three landings, which is at Algiers, Oran and Casablanca. Um, they're mounted simultaneously on the 8th of November 1942.
2: I want to ask as well, the Axis then launched an offensive in the Kazarin Pass in February 1943. So it was a success for Rommel, wasn't it? But was that success
1: short-lived? What happened? Okay, so the <coughs> positions in Tunisia following the invasion of Operation Torch um, had seen the Allies overextend massively. The distance between Algiers and Tunis, I believe, is compared in some of the Allied notes to the distance between Aberdeen and London. It's oh. it's an it's an exorbitant distance to try and supply an army across, um, and initially the Allied Landing Force consists of about a brigade of infantry and a battalion of tanks. So you you have parts of the 78th Division, and also what is known as Blade Force, which is the advance of the 6th Armoured Division, rushing eastward, while the bulk of the American forces, which had comprised a large portion of the landing troops, were kept in the West to blockade against a threat that didn't exist from Spanish Africa. This was the US 5th Army. And as a result, the Axis were able to do exactly what the British Chiefs of Staff had feared, which was Russia force in uh, under Walther Nehring uh, in November '42, and they blocked the Allied progression in front of Tunis. And eventually, a sort of battle line starts forming. And uh, in the in the sort of opposite of what what people call the rush to the sea in World War One, where you have the the sort of uh, trench lines moving northward towards the coast um you have instead from uh from the, the point of contact in Tunisia, the battle lines start extending southwards into southern Tunisia as more and more Allied troops pour in and more Axis troops pour in. But Castrine Pass then comes in February nineteen forty three. So after about three months of this stalemate fighting and consistent build up um, Rommel has retreated since El Alamein back through Tripoli and into Tunisia, where he hopes to hold what is the Marath line, which is in southern Tunisia, a series of French fortifications, uh, that were built in the interwar period, um, and aimed at the Italian colony in Libya. They're slightly outdated fortifications, but he hopes that this will provide him with at least a position where he can hold off Montgomery's advancing eighth army. But Monty's 8th Army isn't in Tunisia yet. It's still at Tripoli. And so in February of 43, you have um, von Arnim, who is commanding the 5th Panzer Army, and uh, Rommel, who is commanding his German-Italian Panzer Army, both decide to launch a combined offensive west at the Allied troops in uh, moving from Algeria into Tunis. Um, because the hope there is that they'll be able to prevent what is effectively this sort of bear trap that the Allies have constructed where the 8th Army is advancing from the east and the 1st Army and U.S. 2nd Corps from the west will just uh, eventually sort of snap shut like the jaws of a trap. So Cassarine Pass is the attempt to lever open these jaws before they can close. And it's aimed into southern Tunisia at the U.S. 2nd Corps who are holding a very... Um, wide and dispersed front, but also holding some of the important passes through the Atlas Mountains. The Atlas Mountains runs north-south through western Tunisia and then sort of curves around the west and through southern Algeria. And holding the passes through these mean that you hold the important roads for supply. So Rommel hurls his troops forward to try and rout the U.S. Second Corps, while von Arnim launches a similar offensive. These these two offensives are called uh, Frühlingswind and Morgenluft. Um, so uh, spring wind and morning air. These um, offensives smash into the U.S. Second Corps, who are sort of piecemeal dis- uh, deployed across much of southern Tunisia, um and probably the most important early engagement is at Sidi Bouzid which is where a large portion of the US 1st Armored Division is placed uh, as well as parts of the US 34th Infantry Division and many of their battalions are deployed too far apart to be mutually supporting so when uh, the veterans of the Africa Corps come smashing through the area they just bypass lots of these surround them mop them up and march the Americans off as prisoners um, and large portions of the U.S. Second Corps disintegrate early on. However, in order to secure the passes through the Atlas Mountains, they need to secure, in, in part, one of them, the Kasserine Pass. There are others, so there is one that runs through um, a position called Spiba, um which is held by a combination of British First Army and U.S. Second Corps troops. But the rest of the Second Corps is streaming back through the Kasserine Pass at this point, And you have tiny forces. I think it's an engineer battalion, ragged portions of an American infantry regiment and a company or so of, of tanks as well as a company of British infantry tanks holding a pass against the majority of the Africa Corps. And this is the eponymous engagement. And it actually goes surprisingly well for the Allies, because where the Axis had initial success, they are now beginning to run up against tougher and tougher resistance as the Allies begin to put together what they think is a robust defense. Um, and so it's that 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 old story that Rommel has in the desert as well, where he runs into Allied troops, but simply can't sustain his offensive beyond causing horrendous damage. He couldn't could destroy the enemy in detail. So by the end of the Kasserine Pass Offensive, Rommel is actually obliged to retreat because he is running out of petrol despite capturing US 2nd Corps dumps. He is um, overextending his troops and suffering unacceptable casualties because the 1st Army is starting to feed some of its veteran units into the area and the US 2nd Corps is starting to rally around those more experienced commanders that it actually has within its ranks, particularly people like um, General Ward, who is the commander of the 1st Armoured Division. But um, Khaosrein is usually regarded as the nadir of Allied fortunes um, in the Tunisian campaign. And to some extent it is. It's, it's an absolutely disastrous early battle for Allies. But in broader terms, in in non-tactically, more operational or even strategic terms, the Allies come out on top in Kasserine Pass because the Axis failed to break the back of the Allied army in the West and Montgomery's army is still advancing from the south. So in doing so, they threw a lot of resources when they had them at Allied troops that looked comparatively weak, still failed to bowl over the top of them and now they're trapped in a, this Tunisian bridgehead with allied forces bearing down from all sides.
3: So, were there actually many casualties on, on both sides during the Tunisian campaign?
1: So, the casualty rate is, compared to the, the size of the forces, the actual number of um, troops killed is comparatively low. Um the estimates for Axis forces, which because of they burned their ration books and things like that, um are difficult to quantify, but it's estimated that the Axis suffered about 12,000 killed, uh, and 40 to 50,000 wounded. That is about a fifth of the overall total of the Axis for, uh, sorry, about a sixth of the overall in the region at the time. Um, The Allies, by comparison, suffer 76,000 casualties uh, total, which is 6,000 killed for the UK, 2,000 for French, 2,700 for the Americans, 21,500 wounded for the British, 10,000 wounded for the French, 9,000 for the Americans, and then between them about 25,000 captured or missing. The Axis casualty rate thus looks quite low until you realize that most of what the Axis troops were actually doing when their positions were overrun was surrendering. So by the end of the Tunisian campaign, despite this sort of equal trading in in killed, wounded, and missing between the the sides, the Axis leaves about 250,000 men to capture, which is somewhere in the region that they suffered at Stalingrad. So the uh, Tunisian campaign actually becomes nicknamed as Tunisgrad by some of the Axis veterans, particularly since some of them had been pulled off the Russian front.
2: Tunisian campaign, it has some quite well-known commanders, doesn't it? For example, Patton, Montgomery, and Rommel. Can you give us a brief overview of them in North Africa?
1: Okay, so our primary, um, we, we have well almost this sort of all-star roster going on for mm. um, the Americans, the British, and the Germans. Um you have uh Rommel, so he's almost almost certainly known to most people as this sort of um, this sort of photogenic well regarded legendary commander of the desert fox and so on um he, he's already had quite a, a glittering career up until his defeat at el alamein um He does not secure this very well in Tunisia um He's been indicted on the strategic level for outrunning his supply lines time and time again during the campaign in the Western Desert. Now in Tunisia, he embarks on the Katarine Pass Offensive, which um, put us to a halt against determined Allied resistance. But he also authorises what is known as Operation Capri, or the Battle of Medanine which is an offensive that is utterly disastrous for the Africa Corps. Mm. The battle lasts about six or seven hours against Montgomery's army, which has been prepared in defensive positions for several days, has ultra-decrypt warning, has a a greater degree of air support, and it shatters the back of the um, tank strength of the German-Italian Panzer Army. Uh, which is soon to be renamed the 1st Italian Army because Rommel departs not long after. Um He hands over control to General Giovanni Messe, who is one of the more well-regarded Italian commanders of the Second World War. Um, the other Axis commanders in theatre, you have the theatre commander, who is uh, Albert Kesselring, um who is actually a <coughs> Luftwaffe man. He is... Usually well regarded for his performance in Italy following this campaign because he is quite capable in def- in building defensive lines that the Allies have to knock their heads against, such as at Monte Cassino. But in Tunisia, he does not display much of the strategic nous that is often uh, attributed to him. He is very over-optimistic about Axis chances, probably because he is just looking at the raw... Numerical strengths arrayed between each side. Um, the supply lines to Tunisia are what he really underestimates. <coughs> Aside from that, you have um, Hans-Jürgen von Arnim, who is the uh, commander of the 5th Panzer Army, who is a Russian veteran, uh, almost the opposite to Rommel in some uh, instances. He's a straight-laced Prussian aristocrat. Reasonably competent, but used to the used to actually fighting in the Russian steppe where he has room to manoeuvre, um, <clears throat> whereas his performance in Tunisia is middling. On the Allied side, however, you have a lot of up-and-comers. Um, not only do you have Montgomery and Alexander who have led their forces west from uh, Egypt, and Alexander eventually takes over 18th Army Group, which comprises all of the Allied ground forces in North Africa. Um, The two of them have already displayed that they can beat Rommel and shatter that Rommel legend, which has spawned a comparable Monty myth. Um, But also Alexander demonstrates a sort of firm hand of army group command that would later define him in Italy. Uh, And the two of them represent quite an effective and highly experienced team. Um, That's not so much kept up by the third member of the British command team in Tunisia, which is... Uh, General Kenneth Anderson, who most people will not have heard of at all.
2: I have, because his brother-in-law is in my Eton book. He died in 1918, and he was, a, was he not a governor of Gibraltar after the war?
1: He was. Uh, Boom. Kenneth... <laughs> so somebody <laughs> has heard of him. I've just shocked you completely, haven't
2: I? <laughs> One person bit, yeah. has heard of
0: him.
1: And well it's 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 actually yeah it is actually quite staggering that you do know of him though because <laughs> he has none of the reputation of other allied commanders uh, other british commanders even in the second world war he um was also a, a divisional commander during the re- during the retreat to dunkirk he held control of southern command during Um, during the sort of 1940-41 period. And then initially it was Monty and Alex that were going to be sent out to North Africa under torch, but then Orkinleck was sacked. And um, Strafer Gott, who was Churchill's uh, hope to replace uh, Orkinleck in control of Eighth Army, uh, died in a plane crash uh, just prior to taking up his post. So Monty was sent out to uh, 8th Army, whereas Anderson was finally placed in charge of the 1st Army to be deployed during Torch. He is, again, he's sort of a polar opposite to Montgomery, not an outspoken man, um, described by many as a shy man, in fact, which you wouldn't expect at Army command level. Um, also, other other adjectives used to describe him, dour, um, dour, Uh, pessimistic as well um but for all of that and for all of the much of his reputation post-war if people have heard of him is quite negative and that i have found during my research to primarily be a development of monty's own creation um because the first army is the is actually the force that seizes tunis and puts an end to the tunisian campaign and comparably monty's army has been stymied at Enfidaville, trying to break through the italians anderson gets a consistent tirade of near libelous messages sent to alan brooke from monty and sometimes from alexander as well and this really does shape the uh post-war image, and also actually the wartime image of him, because he never gets a command again after Tunisia. Um, Initially, he's earmarked for D-Day, but then Monty sacks Mm. him when he gets put in charge of 21st Army Group.
2: I have a vague recollection as well that his one child, or his only son, is killed in 47 in the Far East as well. It's quite a sad family.
1: Yeah. um, Anderson does, does not have a fortunate war and not a fortunate post-war either. I think he'd um, been quite
2: badly wounded in World War I as well but that just, my research on this is so old now, this was for 2013 I was working on this <laughs> Shows your age Alex Shows your age. Shut up, you're the same age as I am. Uh, year younger. <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> anyway
3: Uh, yeah, moving on Um, I want to know did the Allies actually learn anything from the Tunisian campaign?
1: Well, that is actually the crux of my thesis, um, more so than much of the rest of it. Um, I've been looking at, at the Allies as a corporate learning body, almost as is, is this concept of of how do armies learn in the field. Um, mm. Some of it does reflect on the the Axis as well, although uh, I am rather hampered in that by not being um, not being fluent in German or Italian. Um but for the, for the most part, I would say that T- Tunisia, I mean, the the title of my thesis sort of gives it away. I called it the Allied Sandbox. It is where the Allied armies become um become more mature. They they play around in this Tunisian sandbox and the results from it are um very revelatory when you look at how they deal with um with campaigning later on. Um, the command structure, for instance, that is used in Tunisia, the this AFHQ system that I've mentioned, this is fundamentally what um underpins both Allied command in Italy. In fact it, it carries on through to Italy, does AFHQ. But it also, if you look at the Shafe system that is used later for Normandy, also very much informs how the command system is structured. So AFHQ is is interesting as, as far as Allied Coalition commands go because it has a Supreme Commander at the top and then multiple departments beneath it. And it's usually organized along an American staff structure. However, these staffs are 50-50 split between British and American um, staff officers with the aim that their two different approaches will give um, a better overall understanding of how this army can work together. The department heads, for example, if they're American, are shadowed by a deputy who is British. And this means that allied interests are represented equally at all levels of the command chain.
2: That's really interesting. I just let, just cause we love controversy on History Hack, is it an American victory or an Allied victory? <laughs> well, <laughs> just to chuck you in and let you get picked at by the vultures on social media.
1: Allied, Allied. <clears throat> <laughs> if I was going to be really controversial, I would say it's a British victory. Um, but. Do it, say it, go on. This this is just from a raw numerical standpoint, but if you Mm. look at the composition of the allied forces going into the final um, conflict in the Tunisian campaign, so roughly late March, early April, there are two British armies comprised of, I think, somewhere in the region of a dozen divisions compared to an American corps of four divisions, which is equaled by the number of divisions in the French 19th Corps. So if the Americans want to claim that it's an American victory, they should at the very least acknowledge that the French did as much. Um, However, (laughs) the reason that it's become known as an American victory is because uh, for the sake of allied propaganda, and in particular for Roosevelt's um, election chances, they needed to sell the invasion in Operation Torch as an American force. um, Because it needed to be shown that the Americans were doing things in the European theatre to avoid any pressure from the American public to put more resources into the Pacific to fight the Japanese instead. So... What you get during this campaign is this this concert, constant and concerted attempt to make out that this is an American-led operation, when in fact, while the Americans do come to number more troops in North Africa by the end of the campaign, most of the fighting on the ground is being done predominantly by British troops. Sam. I want to thank you for coming to join
3: us and giving us this amazing overview of a forgotten campaign. I mean, not necessarily completely forgotten. Some people remember it, but not as well known as all the others, for example, D-Day or Operation Barbarossa. So thank you for joining us. Thank
1: you for having me.
2: Absolutely. And if you want to come back and hone in on one thing that particularly interests you, I know people would love to hear about it.
1: I might take you up on that offer. Thank you very much.
2: Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Dan Spencer all about the Walls of the Roses, but from not from the traditional point of view. So join us for that.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,